New year, new debt ceiling battle. But if this economic cycle has been so different, do we need to be worried about that? Here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everybody. It's the week of January 23rd, 2023, and we're here to talk policy today. Not as has often been the case in the last year, monetary or Federal Reserve policy, this week we're all about fiscal policy and specifically the perennial problem child of the U.S. Congress, the debt ceiling. Julia Herman is joining me to discuss if and to what extent we're worried about the political side of the debt ceiling, but also the broader topic of debt sustainability in the U.S. For our listeners, the debt ceiling should be a familiar topic of conversation. It's been raised 78 times since 1960. Wait a second. 1960 plus 78 is more than 2023. So that means the debt ceiling has technically been raised more than once per year across that time period. Yeah, I was really surprised too, but it's right on the Treasury's website. Wow. Okay, go on. All right. So raising the debt ceiling is a job that only Congress can do. And when the debt ceiling and the associated budget negotiations are in the House and the Senate, the full faith and credit of the United States is potentially at stake. And there have been pretty high stakes in these conversations over the last decade or so. Recent debt ceiling battles have had major consequences for politicians and also for the markets. I'm thinking about the 2011 experience when it took Congress until the last minute to strike a deal and raise the debt ceiling and substantial market volatility followed, even if that volatility was temporary. So even if this is a regular congressional experience, anytime we start to bump into the debt ceiling, which by the way, is a cool $31.4 trillion right now, it is of great concern to investors. Yes, great concern indeed. And if you look under the hood at the process and how this actually goes down, it gets even more interesting. So on January 13th last week, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen wrote a letter to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And she told him that as of January 19th, so last Thursday now, the United States would not be able to issue any more debt and the Treasury would need to use extraordinary measures to literally pay the bills, which means preventing the U.S. from defaulting on Treasuries. So as of the 19th, we bumped up against our debt ceiling. That sounds scary. And frankly, it is scary. But I'll swoop in with a reminder that those extraordinary measures that Julia mentioned and this process as a whole are more than standard in that a Treasury secretary from every administration, no matter their political party in recent decades, has used these extraordinary measures at some point. So, Julia, what happens now that we've bumped up on the debt ceiling and the gauntlet has been thrown? So Congress, paired with some cooperation from the president, is going to have to address this by either raising the debt ceiling or temporarily suspending it, which writes a little bit of just a free pass temporarily. So Congress could do all of this right now, but why do today what you can make the market agonize over for months? So the negotiations will likely come to a head probably in the spring. You quickly clarify why the U.S. bumps up against this ceiling and what it means to raise it, if that's the right choice. 
really, really important clarification there. So first off, we bump up against the debt ceiling because the US and every other country over time is running budget deficits. And we finance those deficits by issuing more debt. So that's the difference between a deficit and debt. And then we have to service that debt, which is basically all those cumulative deficits from all those years. We have to service that by making interest payments. So just as economies and prices, inflation, grow over time, debt levels have also risen. So too must the debt ceiling. So second, let's be clear, raising the debt ceiling does not imply anything about new spending, new stimulus, new fiscal support, nothing. Raising the debt ceiling does only one thing. It allows the U.S. government to meet the costs of its existing obligations. So raising the debt ceiling does not write any sort of blank check for future spending by anyone. So important. And so let me pause there and unpack each of those nuggets. First, it's worth noting that by existing obligations, like you're pointing out, Julia, as Ms. Yellen made clear in her letter, we're talking about spending that was put in place by presidents and congresses of both political parties over the past decades and decades. Think Medicare or Social Security or defense spending. These are not new. However, people could very understandably think that the ceiling does finance new spending because negotiating over the debt ceiling always ends up being tied to future budget negotiations. Past spending versus future spending, all negotiated in the present, it's really confusing. It's very confusing. It's basically like sitting down and paying your family's credit card bill while setting out next year's budget. Ooh, I love that example. It was a way of framing it that actually helped me to understand this process. So if we extend the metaphor, there's nothing like paying a bill to make you question your current spending. I think we can all relate to that right now. And Congress is agreeing to keep paying for what everyone has already bought in the past several decades while trying to agree on a future spending plan. And when it comes to that future spending plan, that's what they'll eventually have to finance under a new debt ceiling over the next few years. Okay, so this helps us transition from the debt ceiling discussion to one that's more broad, the debt sustainability conversation. So in other words, if raising the debt ceiling is more about politics, then it's worth addressing the item that folks are arguing about, how much we spend. and if it's a real risk or concern for the future. Maybe we should start by acknowledging that debt sustainability is a forever concern. Some economists consider the US or other countries' debt levels to be a more urgent risk factor than others, but everyone keeps an eye on it. I agree. But we have spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks explaining how we think this economic cycle is different. And that leads us to two concerns that we have about the US debt picture. And these are relatively new concerns because things are changing. First, since interest rates have risen in the US, the cost of servicing US debt has also risen. And global factors make the supply and demand balance for US treasuries different, which may further impact interest rates. Julia, you mentioned that by raising the debt ceiling, Congress is allowing the Treasury to meet the costs of its current obligations. And those costs to service the debt are rising rapidly as interest rates rise. So maybe tell us more about what we would call the debt service situation. It's really not a shocking part of the playbook of the last several years. So when countries monetize their debt, which is just a fancy word for what the Treasury and the Fed did to finance emergency pandemic spending, in which the central bank buys bonds issued by the Treasury. So by doing so, by monetizing our own debt, basically producing and buying our own debt, as we well know, historically generates inflation and interest rates rise accordingly to contain that inflation. So that's exactly where we are right now. 
Now, the impact of all of this gets very complicated very fast in terms of how this flows through to a budget. So let's focus on one fact. Higher interest rates make it more expensive to service the debt to pay our national bills. So the U.S.'s net interest bill is expected to rise to 3% of GDP by 2030. And it's been higher before, but it's never been quite so close to defense spending, which is expected to rise to about 4.1% of GDP by 2030. Okay, so we have more debt and higher interest rates. So put those together and it's more expensive debt. Seems like a case to cut future fiscal spending. And a lot of people would agree with you in the U.S. right now, and a lot of countries facing the same situation have done just that. They've enacted what are called austerity programs. But those other countries don't have treasuries, which nearly every country on earth holds in the billions of dollars. You're making an argument that because U.S. treasuries have historically seen consistent global demand, there's been potentially less risk of a big upward surprise in U.S. rates, because if rates do rise, there's more demand to come in to capture that higher rate. Some countries tend to experience larger swings in their debt costs over any given period of time. But that argument for the U.S., the stability of U.S. rates, assumes a baseline demand for U.S. treasuries, which moves us into the supply-demand pillar of our debt sustainability conversation and why we're keeping such a close eye on it. You already covered the supply part. As of last Thursday, the Treasury can't issue new debt until Congress comes up with a new debt ceiling. So lower incremental supply, all else equal. What about the demand side? Let's remember that investors like to go where interest rates are highest. They tend to do this where they're compensated the most for lending to a household, a company, a country. And we have to adjust that for the varying risk of those opportunities, of course. So for several years before the pandemic, Treasury stood alone on that hill of sovereign debt. Historically, trustworthy borrowers, such as the U.S. government or the Japanese or German government, were carrying quite different interest rates. In fact, interest rates were zero or negative in Europe and Japan and nearly every other notable investment destination. Negative yielding debt surpassed 17 trillion in 2019 before all the disjointedness of the COVID period. But treasuries before the COVID period were paying you a positive yield. So demand was through the roof. That's right. But that competitive advantage, for lack of a better phrase, has diminished. Central banks everywhere are raising interest rates. And perhaps more important is the fact that interest rates globally are now above zero. So the difference between negative rates and non-negative rates has been pretty meaningful. So relative demand may fade a bit moving forward. I know we're talking about all of this mainly at the margin in that we're not expecting demand or supply to plunge. But where does this net out? Well, other than the treasuries that mature, the stock or supply of treasuries won't change dramatically. So the risk would be that lower demand is the factor pushing yields higher. And let me summarize all of this by saying that we're not imminently fearful of the U.S. debt situation. But there are many reasons that this year and this period in economics is starting to look different for investors. And so keeping a close eye on debt sustainability is reasonable in our view. We're not surprised by the push to reduce fiscal spending in response to these higher debt servicing costs the U.S. is experiencing.
That brings us to our portfolio pause, a segment of the program where we share an investment idea. And here we want to circle back to the market implications of a protracted debt ceiling standoff. Because as we learned in 2011, and then again in 2018, these can be highly disruptive. And while the U.S. has never actually defaulted, in 2011, the U.S. did lose its AAA credit rating with Standard & Poor's and hasn't regained it back. Then in 2018, the fears of a deal not getting reached and therefore the risk that the U.S. would default on treasuries created lots of noise and volatility. We're expecting this year's debt ceiling battle to be a vicious one, and for that to result in some meaningful, if hopefully short-term, market volatility. We see this as most likely to occur in short-term treasury bonds, the ones that are maturing near the time of the debt ceiling standoff. And that timeline looks likely to be about May through July of this year. There also might even be liquidity issues in that front end of the curve. So investors with very tactical orientations could position around this. Other investors might choose to let it pass. All of this, of course, assumes, as we do, that Congress will eventually strike a deal on the debt ceiling. That's right. We're not even talking about a U.S. default situation, which would be a far more serious event. Yes, technically, if Congress were not to raise the debt ceiling, we would effectively be staring down the barrel of a default. But this is extremely unlikely. And the U.S. Treasury also has a few emergency tricks up its sleeve that it could probably use to prioritize debt payments until something gets ironed out. But there's no doubt about it, going even that far to that brinkmanship is quite bad news. And in our view, it's pretty much impossible to position around such an extreme risk as a treasury default. It's pretty much unimaginable. Treasuries are the credit risk-free rate for the entire financial system, that whole base that everyone is relying on. So remember that phrase, too big to fail from the global financial crisis? That's an understatement for the U.S. Treasury market. Too big to fail, precisely. That said, the other topic that we addressed today was about the longer term and more macroeconomic concept of debt sustainability and an increase in perceived risks there around debt sustainability could have a whole range of impacts on asset classes. And I don't want to leave the portfolio pause with addressing that as well. So just for one, we'd probably expect treasury yields to rise somewhat. Very, very important note. The market is so focused on the Fed and when it will pause its rate hikes that we should keep in mind that there's another risk. This could be another reason pushing yields higher. Well, here's a trickier one, different implication in the market. What happens to the U.S. dollar? You know, we've we said earlier that investors tend to purchase bonds with higher yields, and that is for sovereigns and many others. This can result for countries in currency strength, but this isn't necessarily the case when the risk of default is what's driving yields higher. So as discussed, it's very, very, very unlikely for that risk to materialize in the U.S., so I'd probably say an ambiguous or slightly negative reaction in the dollar reflecting some temporary loss of confidence. And when it comes to equities and non-treasury fixed income, remember that quality is king when there is uncertainty, whether about the debt ceiling or other risks for this year. So equities with valuations and earnings that are more resilient to higher yields may suit for investors who are concerned about increasing debt sustainability risks things like value equities. And on the fixed income side, this might be a vote in favor of investment grade corporate bonds. Coming up next, it's earnings season. What does the reporting tell us about last quarter? And what does the guidance tell us about this quarter and the next one? 
But that's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. In the meantime, please remember to give us a like, follow, or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our reviews at newyorklifeinvestments.com and click the Insights tab. Until then, I'm Lauren Goodwin. See you next time. Our podcast is produced by Milo Benamox and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which may vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issue or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. There's no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nye Life Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nye Life Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.